of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we are grateful to be here, to have an opportunity to gather together, to worship you through song, through prayer, and through the study of your Word, and through fellowship. Lord, we recognize that we are not the only church in Georgetown this morning where your truth is being proclaimed, that we have many brothers and sisters in Christ gathered in many local congregations And so it's our privilege this morning to pray for them as well. Father, we pray for Harriet Jones and for Saving Grace and the work that they're doing there, proclaiming your truth throughout the city. We thank you for partners in the gospel. Lord, we ask as we turn now to a time of the study of your word, that you would change our hearts and our minds and our lives through the power of your word. Help us to set aside all the things that may distract us from hearing from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians this year, and we've kind of broken it up into a bunch of mini-series within the series, and we're in a series right now on Christian freedom. What does it look like to be free? And this morning, we're going to be talking about the difference between liberty and license, that God has set us free in Jesus Christ to have liberty, to have freedom, not as a license to sin. But I was thinking about this idea about liberty this morning, and and we added some things this morning, and I just kind of thought, you know, what pictures come to mind when we think about liberty? What things come to mind when we think about liberty? And I think this one may be one that a lot of people think of when they think about liberty. That's the Statue of Liberty. Very good. Man, glad you guys got that one. Uh, Many of us, we have other ideas of what freedom looks like, and we have ideas, we picture freedom, and it looks like this right? America, right? We, we picture freedom this way. Uh, sadly, many Americans, this is their picture of what it means to be, uh, have freedom, right? Big America. Look, what do you see here? What do you notice besides the dinosaurs and the bears and the assault rifles, right? Uh, hamburgers, donuts, bacon, dinosaurs, bald eagles, right? So all these things that just a life of self-indulgence, right? That's what freedom means. It means I get to do what I want. Amen? Don't say amen, right? That's not what freedom means. But that's how, when we think of freedom, we think I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to live how I want, do what I want, eat what I want, go where I want, say what I want. That's freedom. And sadly, there are many Americans, when they think about Christian freedom, this is what they think about. Uh, and we know that that is, not, that is not what Jesus had in mind uh, when he talks about Christian freedom. When we think about Christian freedom, what we have to understand is that there is something more to understand. There is something more than just being able to do what we want. We know that Scripture certainly gives us things that we are called to do. God gives us certain things that he wants us to do, he expects us to do. Even as followers of Jesus, we're, we're given things that we should do to honor him. And he certainly gives us things that we should not do, things that would be against his character and against who he is. And we call those things sin. And those things that he calls us to do when we don't do them, that is called sin. And in between there, there's this big gray area. There's a lot of things that scripture doesn't speak to And we have to make decisions based on what we feel like God is calling us to do. And the great thing is that there can be be differences even within the Christian body, even within a local body, that we may not see eye to eye on certain things. And we can have those differences, and we can both still walk with Jesus 
One is not more spiritual than the other if we choose to do one or the other. So when we think about Christian freedom, one of the biggest things that we're going to see in chapter 10 is Paul's been dealing with this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, I know that's not really a big deal for us today. At least it hasn't been an issue for me lately. Uh, You know, going to someone's house and they're like, yeah, this is the goat that we slaughtered to our idol. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it hasn't happened to me. Uh, So it's not something that we really deal with, but there are principles underlying this issue that I think still affect us today. And one of the things that Paul lays out is that he wants to give them principles to guide their decision making. And he's going to point them to how do we make decisions that honor God and that keep other people in mind. Because while most of us think that freedom is something that we just use for self-indulgence, what we're going to see is that in Jesus... God's design and God's desire is that our freedom would lead us to selflessness, not self-indulgence. That it would lead us to self-discipline. We're going to see that this morning. Paul is calling, he's going to call the Corinthians to define their daily lives and decisions by what honors God, what's going to build other people up, and ultimately what's going to advance the gospel. And it's this kind of life that he calls us to. It's this kind of freedom that he calls us to, but this kind of life is hard, yet it is rewarding. I want to go ahead and give you up front, uh, so there's kind of a number of issues that Paul's going to address in, our, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians today. He started addressing these back in chapter 8, and I kind of want to spoil it for you so that when we get there, I can talk more about the principles than about what Paul's actually saying. Is that all right if I just kind of clear up, like, what's Paul actually saying? What's kind of his final judgment? The first thing is, Paul was having to deal with, hey, can we go to these pagan festivals in the pagan temples and be a part of those festivals? And Paul's answer to that is absolutely not. You can't do that and worship Jesus, right? That's, that's not a thing that you can do. The other question they had was, hey, Uh, a lot of times we go to the market and we buy meat and we know that some of that meat may have been sacrificed to an idol uh, and we just don't know when we're buying meat. Should we just become vegetarians? And Paul says, no, you don't have to do that. He says, buy whatever meat you want and just don't ask. Like it doesn't matter because it's just meat, right? He's don't, don't overthink this. Just go buy the meat and eat the meat. And then the other question is, well, what about when we go to our, our unbelieving friend's house, friend's houses who aren't Christians, Can we eat the meat there because they may have sacrificed it to an idol? Paul says, I'll tell you what, I want you to keep interacting with non-believers. You should be interacting with people who don't know Jesus. I want you to go to their house and have a meal. He's like, when they put food in front of you, just don't ask. But if they say, hey, this was sacrificed at the temple of Aphrodite, then don't eat it, right? Because in their minds, they're letting you know that by doing this, by, by eating this meal, you're kind of joining in in their worship of that false god, right? So does that make sense? So can we participate in, in pagan worship activities? No, right? Can we buy meat in the meat market? Yes, just don't ask, right? It doesn't matter. Uh, can we go to someone else's house and eat the meat? Yes, unless they make a point of telling us, right? So I hope that's clear, right? That's good, right? Uh, I know these are decisions we all face every single day, whether or not to eat the meat, sacrifice to idols. I know. Um, Let's look at our text here this morning, because Paul's going to give us uh, some examples from history, and he's going to draw their attention. This whole section 
has been about helping them understand how to live in their Christian, Christian freedom. So verses 1 through 13, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. He's talking about the nation of Israel. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things became examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, for the people sat down to eat, drink, and they got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as warnings to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but when the temptation, uh, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. So what is Paul saying here? He's going back to show them that, listen, I understand and I want you to understand that there will always be a temptation to use your liberty as a license to sin. That temptation is always going to be there. And we see this very clearly in the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people, and, and Paul takes them all the way back to Exodus. They are leaving Egypt as uh, where they've been slaves for over 400 years. God is providing them with some amazing blessing, and he's providing them with some amazing privileges to be his people. He's giving them so much liberty and freedom that they've never experienced before. And what do we see happens? We see that they take those privileges, that liberty and that freedom, and they begin to use it as an excuse for sin. Paul wants them to understand that, hey, just, just because you have these liberties, just because you have privileges, just because you have freedom, this is no guarantee of your success. And what's happened with the Corinthians is that there were those who thought that they were smarter, they were wiser, they were more knowledgeable, they considered themselves stronger in the faith. And they had started using and abusing their privileges in ways that God never intended. They were blessed. They had wisdom. They were strong. But they were not invincible when it came to temptation. Now, Paul uses a number of illustrations here. He talks about the cloud. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 13 and 14, you read that the cloud went before them. It was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was God actually leading and guiding them. God actually led and guided them. And then we see in the New Testament, Luke 1, says this. Do we have those verses? There we go. It says, uh, talking about the birth of Jesus, to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And so Paul reminds them that, they, hey, God is guiding you. God is guiding you just like he guided the Israelites in the Old Testament, we have 1 Peter 1.5 1, tells us this. It says, you are being protected by God's power through faith for, our salvation, for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we see God's guidance and protection. Paul's telling them, hey, that same guidance and protection that the Israelites have, you have in Jesus Christ. 
he goes on and he talks about the Red Sea. The Red Sea was where God miraculously delivered the Israelites from people who were trying to kill them. The Egyptians changed their mind when they realized that they were losing their slaves. And they changed their mind and they come after them, they're going to pursue them, they're going to strike them down. Yet God opens up the Red Sea and they walk through. And those that sought to kill them themselves ended up being defeated. In the same way, Jesus Christ saves us, miraculously provides salvation from the one who seeks to destroy us and bring us down. Again, we have the parallel. He goes on and he says that you were baptized into Moses. In the New Testament, we have the, the sacrament of baptism. And baptism is not only into Jesus Christ, understanding that we follow him as our leader, but it's also into his body, into a community. There's a shared identity that all those who are in Jesus have. And Paul is reminding them of this. He goes on and he talks about the, the bread that they ate, the manna from heaven. And we know that Jesus himself says that he is the bread of life. And then he talks about the miraculous drink. There are a number of times where God tells Moses and Aaron, he says, hey, speak to the rock, tap the rock. Water comes out when there's no water for the people of Israel. God provides water, which you need to live. And what does Jesus say in John 4? He says, I am the living water. So Paul's saying, hey, we're not any different than they are. We're not any different than they are. And because we're not any different than they are, we need to understand that just like they fell, they had all these privileges, all these blessings, yet they still fell into temptation. That temptation is still real for us today. We have to understand that that temptation is still real for us. Paul, in the end of chapter 9, goes through and he says, he uses the example of a runner or a boxer, and he says that I have to, I have to be strict with my body. It takes self-discipline to live out Christian freedom. And he's reminding them of this, that we have to have this self-discipline so that we can use our freedom for selfless service and not self-indulgence. We have to use our freedom from selfless service, not self-indulgence. I want to look at verses 6 through 10 again. Paul says that, hey, these things that happened to the Israelites, they became examples to us. He says, so that we will not desire the evil things as they did. If you remember the story of the Israelites, they come out of Egypt, and it's like a day or two later, and they're like, Moses, let's go back to Egypt. We had meat. We had all this good stuff in Egypt. Let's go back to the good things. I wonder how many of us find ourselves craving the good things of this world over a relationship with our Heavenly Father? How many of us find ourselves trapped in the same things that the Israelites did? Know that you're not alone, but know that God also provides a way out. He goes on and he says, he says some of them became idolaters. And I, I really think when Paul says this, that this idea of idolatry, the sin of idolatry really covers everything that Paul's about to talk about, right? What is an idol? An idol is anything that you place in priority over God. I've heard it said this way before. Whatever you think about when you have nothing to think about, that is your God. Some of you are like, I'm a mom. I don't ever not think about anything. But whatever you think about when you, when you have nothing to think about, that is your God. That is your idol. I, I was challenged this week to think about it a little bit different as I spent time. Because you know what I think? 
I think an idol is not just something that we think about more than God. It's not just something that we put in the place of God. I think idols for us are those things that we want in addition to God. When we start to say Jesus isn't enough, that I need Jesus plus this, then we've created an idol in our lives. Paul goes on and lists a number of things. Uh, He says, I don't want the same thing to happen to you guys that happened to them. He goes on and he says, hey, they were caught up in idolatry. They had sexual immorality in their lives. He says that 23,000 fell dead. He says they were testing Christ as some of the, uh, test Christ as some of them did. What's he talking about? He's talking about when they questioned Moses and Aaron and said, why did your God bring us out here? They're questioning God's plans and purposes for their lives. I wonder how many of us have ever found ourselves questioning, God, why are you doing this to me? Do you ever question God's plans and purposes for your life? Going back to the sexual immorality, we've covered this twice already in chapter 6 and chapter 7, remembering that sexual immorality is any activity that is sexually arousing outside of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman who are committed to a lifetime together. Are you in any way struggling with that sexual immorality? He goes on and he says, nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. What's this a reference to? This is, again, when the people complained not against God, but they complained against Moses and Aaron that we have to recognize that God has placed spiritual leaders over us who are, who are charged and will be held accountable for shepherding us, for guiding us spiritually. And so I, I wonder, do we ever complain against our spiritual leaders? Do we grumble against them as the Israelites did in the deserts? When the pastors and elders and your small group shepherds say, hey, here's the direction we're going, most of us, most of us are kind enough to not say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Most of us just don't do it. Well, let me ask you, if your kids just didn't do what you asked them to do, how would you feel about that? Yeah, that would be called disobedience, right? That would not be following. I wonder how many times has, have you been talking with, with one of your leaders, your small group shepherd, and they said, you know, I, I really feel like this would be a great next step for you. And you just kind of say, eh, I don't think I'm going to do that. Are we good at following? Now, I know this is hard. Not only are we Americans, but we live in the greatest country of the whole world, Texas. Like, we understand freedom. We understand nobody gets to tell me what to do, but we see scripturally that we are called to follow our leaders. And let me say this, we follow our leaders spiritually as long as what they're asking us to do is is biblical, right? So, using Nation of Israel as an example If I were to bring a golden calf in here on Sunday morning and ask you to bow down to it, I would really hope that you guys wouldn't do that. Uh, Just saying, right, like that would not be biblical, right? Uh, But as long as what we're doing is biblical and in line with biblical principles, are you willing to follow your leaders? Are you willing to follow them? He goes on, he says, nor should we complain. These things happened as examples and were written to us as warnings, They were written to us as warnings. And then he goes on, and I love this last part. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. He says, look, you're you're not better than anyone else, but I also want to remind you, you're not worse off than anyone else. That same temptation has always been there, and it's always going to be there. One thing that I read this week talked about... um, 
It's one thing to sin against the law. It's another thing to sin against grace. It's one thing to sin against the law. It's another thing to sin against grace. And the the writer was talking about uh, how hard it is. You know, we think that the Israelites, man, they had God just spelled it out for them. God just told them, do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that. And they sinned against that. And there are a lot of people who would look at that and say, well, God put it there in black and white, so that must be worse for them to sin than for me. But the writer, what he's saying when he says that it's worse offense to sin against grace is that it's, it's a greater sin for us when we abuse that grace and we take our liberties, we take our freedoms, and we use them as nothing more as an excuse to sin. Romans 6 talks about this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? May it never be. By no means. By no means. Paul goes on throughout that chapter, and he talks about how we have to be careful not to abuse God's grace. I think it's, it's interesting that Paul says, hey, whoever thinks he stands must be careful. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful. Because there are a lot of us who think that, hey, I'm strong. I can go into this situation. I can put myself in this situation, and I'm strong enough to know that I'm going to flee. But what usually ends up happening? Instead of fleeing, we end up falling. Instead of fleeing, we end up falling. Here's what happens, has happened to me before in the past, and I imagine maybe it happens to you. Sometimes we put ourselves in a position where we're, where we're tempted, and then we blame God for not rescuing us. We put ourselves in a position where we're going to be tempted, and then we blame God for not rescuing us. We have to be careful how we live. We also have to understand that God is faithful. He will provide a way out. He will provide, some translations say, a way of escape. What I love about God's grace and His mercy is that that way of escape is not always the quickest route. Sometimes it requires endurance. Sometimes you're going to be struggling through something for a very long time, and God is developing perseverance and endurance within you. And sometimes it's not the easiest route. Sometimes it may require that you make some real sacrifices in your life. But I guarantee, if you look back on your lives in those instances where you were tempted, I guarantee you if you think back, you will see some of those missed opportunities for the way out that God was providing because He will always provide that way out. The question is, will you look for it? Are you looking for it? Are you doing your part to be sure that you're not placing yourself in a position where you will be tempted to, to sin. Let's keep going. Verses 14 through 22. Now, this is where Paul is going to very clearly say, hey, we cannot, we cannot as Christians participate in pagan worship. We can't go to the temples and participate in their worship. Let's look at what he says here. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Does he say casually walk away? No. Does he say meander? No. Does he say stroll? What does he say? Flee, right? Run, flee, get away from it. Think like Joseph. When Potiphar's wife tries to take a hold of him, what does he do? Man literally runs out of his clothes. That is fleeing. That is running for your life, all right? Paul says, run for your lives from idolatry. I'm speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for is not sharing. Uh, Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? 
The bread we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and we are one, we are many, are one body, for all of us share that one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in what is offered at the altar? What I'm saying, what am I saying then? The food all, uh, that the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I don't say what they uh, but I don't say what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So he's saying, look, what you have to understand, this goes back to the Old Testament. Very clearly it's identified in Deuteronomy that it says, when you're sacrificing to idols, you're sacrificing to a demon. So Paul says we can't participate that. I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what's he saying here? He's saying very clearly that we can't be double-minded. Paul's saying that we have to be careful that we don't let liberty lead to a divided loyalty to Christ. That we don't let our liberty lead to a divided loyalty to Christ. And I think that is so easy because it doesn't happen overnight, does it? When we think about the things that divide our loyalty to Christ, let me just be upfront. I think the things that divide our loyalty to Christ, for most of us, it's not the pagan worship. Like, that is the least of our problems. For most of us, it's when we have a good thing that we turn into a God thing, right? When our job becomes the source of our identity, because of how big our paycheck is or how small our paycheck is. When our kids become our source of pride or they become the entire focus of our lives, we've fallen into an idol. It could be our spouse. It could be our home. It could be a number of things. And usually we don't wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to worship my kids and I'm going to put them at the center of my life. What happens is just over time, we slowly get drawn away and we get drawn away, and we get drawn away, and pretty soon we wake up, and our loyalty is divided. Yeah, Jesus is in there. Yeah, we got Jesus. We got just enough Jesus, but our life has become consumed by so many other things. I read one commentator this week who said that uh, as, as Christians, we can define our priorities by where we spend our time and where we spend our money. What, what captures our time, our money, and our thoughts those are the things that define our priorities. And so I, I challenge you, as you think about your priorities, think about what your calendar looks like. Think about what your bank account looks like. Think about where your mind goes when you have time to let it go somewhere. What are those things? Do you have a divided loyalty? Paul gives us a great reason why we can't, why we can't participate in those things. This word... Uh, that he says that we have a sharing in Christ is the Greek word koinonia, and it means joint participation. It's where we get our word communion from when we talk about communion as a body of Christ, the Lord's Supper. And he goes on and he explains that the cup, the cup symbolizes Jesus' blood. Now, what's really interesting is that in the Old Testament, when we talk about the sacrifices, God says that the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice is what contains their life. Yet when you drain all the blood, it leads to their death. And so when we take the cup of communion, we're remembering Christ's life, but also his death. That through his blood, 
He paid the penalty for our sins. We also read about the bread. The bread represents Jesus' physical body, but also his spiritual body. We know that his physical body was broken on the cross. Yet we're also reminded of his spiritual body, the church, both the local and the universal church. Communion through the, through the remembering of the, the bread and the wine or grape juice, if you're Baptist or whatever, right? So the bread and the juice, it symbolizes our communion, our fellowship with Christ, but also with one another. So Paul's calling them to remember not only, not only Christ, but also each other. And very, at the very end, he says, hey, uh, you're going to provoke Jesus to jealousy. That's not a good thing. And the sad thing is that most of the Corinthians, they weren't intending to do this. They thought they were doing something that was just okay because in their minds, hey, this is just meat. It's just a party. I can go. It's nothing major. I can go do this. And so in their minds, it was all right to go and do this. But Paul's saying, no, we can't be mixed up with an idol and with Jesus. We can't have our, divided, our loyalty be divided between the two. Yet in the Corinthians' mind, because they didn't intend to do it, it wasn't such a big deal. Well, let me ask you. If you stuck your hand in a fire and you didn't intend to burn yourself, are you still going to be burned? You're still going to be burned. I wonder how many of you ladies, if a man was dating you and another woman, and he said, hey, what's the big deal? I still give you attention. How many of you would be satisfied with that answer? Here's what blows my mind. TV show Bachelor. (laughs) Bachelor, right? It's a TV show about a man who dates multiple women at one time, watched by women who hate men that date multiple women at one time right? Anybody ever think about that? Just saying. There's some logical disconnect here, all right? Uh, But we would not go for that. We would not go for, hey, I still give you attention too. Jesus is not going to go for that either. We must not let our, our loyalty be divided. I ask you this morning, what divides your loyalty and attention from Christ? It's not always something that we can remove. There are good things in our lives. Like I said, it could be work. You still have to go to work, right? It could be children. You you must keep your children, right? I'm sorry. You might be able to pass them off for a couple hours, but eventually they got to come home. It could be your spouse. And so for us, a lot of times, it's, it's not about removing these idols. It's just about putting them in the right place and viewing them with the right, uh, right attitude. Last section here I want us to look at, verses 23 through 31, through 30. Yeah, actually, we're going to go through 11.1. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. That's a quote from Psalm 24.1. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set, set before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is offered to an idol, don't eat it, out of con- consideration for the one who told you and for conscience sake. I don't mean your own conscience, but the other person's. 
For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I slandered? Because, something I give, because of something I give thanks for. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. What's Paul saying here? He's saying we have to leverage your liberty for God's glory to point others to Christ. Leverage your liberty for God's glory to point others to Christ. He says whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to God's glory. And he says, and what brings God the greatest glory is that others would be saved. Others would come to know Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that everything we see here Everything we see brings us back to how Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament and the single greatest commandment that guides us as New Testament believers is that we would love God and that we would love others. That we would love God and that we would love others. What we have to understand is that we are given freedom not for our self-indulgence, not for our self-indulgence, but for self-discipline so that we may live selfless lives, sacrificing for others. Sacrificing for others. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example, even as I follow Christ. Follow my example, even as I follow Christ. We live in a culture that is characterized by self-indulgence. We have credit cards to buy things that we don't need to impress people that we're never going to meet, and that we probably don't even like. Yet we buy it because some marketer told us that we should want this thing. And we go out and we spend all this money and we do all these things for what? So that we can self-indulge. It's what characterizes most of our society. And yet Paul here, he says, follow my example even as I follow Christ. There are too few examples of of us denying ourselves in the moment so that we could experience reward in the long term. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about his own life and the sacrifices that he made. When I think about Jesus, he had had two ends in mind when he gave his life. Number one was for his church, for those that would put their trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, that they would be blessed and they would be built up And number two, what does Jesus say? He said, I came to seek and save the lost. It was the unsaved that he gave his life for. And so Paul says, this is my example, that I give my life to seek and save the lost so that they could be built up, they could be brought in to the body of Christ, and then they could be brought up to maturity so that they can go out and seek and save the lost and understand what it means to become mature in Christ. And so we have this cycle of reaching the lost, building them up, and sending them out. Reaching the lost, building them up, and sending them out. It's a hard thing for us to think about. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We know that Christ lived for two things. He gave his life. If we were to sum it up as one thing, it would be making disciples, right? Making disciples means that we're sharing the gospel with other people, and when they put their trust in Christ, 
we're, we're coming alongside them to build them up, that they would be strengthened, that they would grow into mature followers of Jesus Christ so that they could lead other people to know Jesus as their Savior and then be able to walk with them as they grow in maturity. I mean, that's what Jesus lived for. Paul says, follow my example even as I follow Christ. What's Paul saying? He says, I'm not, when he says that, he's admitting, I'm not going to get it perfect every time. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall. I'm still going to sin. But I'm going to give my life to these things. This is what is going to characterize my life. And I want to challenge us as a church this morning. Is that something you're willing to do? Are you willing to look at the person to your right or to your left and say, hey, man, I'm not perfect, but I want to, I want to, to follow the example of Christ, and I want to live in such a way that I can look at my kids, I can look at my neighbors and say, hey, if you'll just follow my example as I follow Christ, we're going to be headed in the right direction. We're going to be going towards the right things. I'm going to commit. I'm not going to live a life of self-indulgence. I'm going to live a life of self-discipline that leads to selflessness and sacrifice for others. I want to encourage you this morning, if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never had that moment where you said, you know what, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. We talked a little bit about this earlier, looking at communion, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins because there was nothing as those who have sinned against God, there's nothing that we could do to earn God's favor. And so Jesus paid that penalty for us. And if you've never reached a moment in your life where you've recognized that, you know what, I, I know that, that I'm a sinner and I know that, that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, and I, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and it's by trusting in him. When we talk about putting your trust in Jesus, what we're saying is that you're removing your trust because a lot of us live thinking that, well, if I just go to enough church services, if I just give enough money, if I'm just nice enough, if I'm good enough, then God will forgive me. And so we have to come to a point where we recognize that that just won't cut it, that it's Christ and Christ alone who is able to pay the penalty for our sins because he was fully God and fully man. And we transfer our trust from ourselves onto Jesus Christ alone, that in that moment, the Bible tells us that our sins are forgiven and we receive eternal life. And here's the great news. You don't just receive eternal life. You receive new life now. See, I don't know about you, but I don't walk around every single day thinking about heaven. I would love to tell you that I do, but that's usually the, one of the farthest things from my mind because I've got so much going on now. And the beauty of the gospel is that it not only transforms our eternal life, but it, it transforms our life now transforms our life now to where we can be people who live for others, who live for something greater than ourselves, that we get to be transformed. It doesn't mean all your problems are going to be fixed, but it does mean they'll be put into a different perspective. You'll be able to walk through those. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, before you start trying to live a selfless life for others, understand that the very first step is that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Because to be honest, even if you live a selfless life for others, if you do that apart from Christ, it doesn't matter. The end result is the same. What matters most is that you would put your trust in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have done that, then I would challenge you. 
What steps are you going to take this week? What steps will you take to give up the self-indulgence? Yeah, it may be awkward to, to invite your neighbor over for dinner and talk to them about Jesus. But is that a sacrifice you're willing to make? Are you willing to be selfless? There may be someone else here this morning, a, a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe they're at another church who just needs an encouraging word from you. Maybe there's a reconciliation that needs to take place so that you can build up that relationship. You can build that person up in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to humble yourself and to, to go through the necessary steps to do the hard thing so that you can build that person up, that you could encourage them? Jesus has given us so many great privileges and so many great blessings. It would be an awful thing for us to waste those on ourselves. What does it look like for you this week to give up the self-indulgence, to be self-disciplined, and to live a selfless life following the example of Christ? We pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we ask that as we go into our work week, as we go back to school this week, as we go into our neighborhoods, as we go to the sports fields, basketball courts, wherever we may go, grocery stores, Lord, would you help us to, to be selfless in the way that we live, not for our own glory, not so that others would call us humble, but for your glory and your glory alone. God, we recognize that, that what will bring you the greatest glory will be when others have had the opportunity to respond to your son, Jesus Christ. When they will experience salvation through him. Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength that we need to walk through this. Lord, would you help us to have our, our freedom in the, in the right place, in the right perspective? Would we understand our liberty? Lord, we ask all of these things in your son's name. Amen. My name is Jeff Brown, and I'm one of the elders here at River Rock, and <clears throat> I'm here to talk about something that's very uncomfortable this morning. Uh, J.T. Liner is our is our uh, treasurer of our church.